The North Carolina Healthcare Association is a proud sponsor of the Do Politics Better podcast. The association is a united voice for hospitals, health systems, and care providers to ensure they can offer high quality, lower cost care to all North Carolinians. Visit nchealthcare.org to learn more about how hospitals and health systems are working to make healthcare easier, more convenient, and with better outcomes. It's the Do Politics Better podcast. I'm Brian Lewis. And I'm Sky David. Dr. Bitzer, Dr. Cooper, we have a two-for-one podcast, and in unusual fashion, our guests will be joining us for the entirety of this podcast, so welcome back. It's great to be here. Thanks for having us. We are in the last week of the primary, so let's talk about the primary. What are you seeing with this year's primary that maybe is important for voters to know, or maybe sets it apart from other race or other years rather uh dr bitzer yeah i think it's interesting that this year kind of matches what we saw in 2020 you know the level of competitiveness within a primary particularly at the top of the ticket the presidential really helps to drive the dynamic i think oftentimes of these primary elections in 2020 it was maybe 31 percent statewide turnout Uh, 2016 had both parties with competitive primaries that hit 36 percent i'm not sure we're going to hit 36 percent we may hit 30 percent based on you know some of these numbers that we're seeing in terms of who's casting early ballots but the race really at the top of the ticket is not competitive it's not on the democratic side for the presidential primary it seems to be playing itself out on the Republican side as we expect. So you really have to be drawing people based on some competitive down ballot races that it just doesn't feel like there's a whole lot of energy out there unless you're within specific legislative congressional districts that are really kind of pumping up the enthusiasm level. Yeah, I agree with all of that. I guess I'd add that one of the interesting things I will watch, and I think we talked about last time I was on the podcast, was unaffiliated voters, right? And what they're doing, and as every listener to this podcast knows, in North Carolina, unaffiliated voters can choose their own adventure in the primary. They can vote in the Democratic primary or the Republican primary. And thus far, about two-thirds of unaffiliated voters are choosing the Republican primary. Now, look, that makes sense, right? They're the more interesting primaries. I think in a little bit, we're going to talk about interesting races and the lion's share of them are on the Republican side. So I think what that tells us is one that people are acting kind of strategically, right? They're voting in the more interesting primaries statewide. It also means that there may be some left-leaning folks that are voting in the Republican primary this time. And the question I have, of course, is could that change the outcome? Or could these left-leaning voters, not necessarily because they're trying to sabotage anything, they're just voting their conscience for who they think is best, could that send something like the lieutenant governor's race to a runoff or 13 to a runoff? So I think we need to keep watching those unaffiliated voters to see what they're doing. Is this just something about early voting? Is this a pattern we're going to continue to see? And I'm going to now filibuster evidently and add one more interesting thing, uh, which is um, that the Republicans have done, I think, a really made a concerted effort to get more people to show up for early and mail voting. Right? They're going to bank the vote. It's cheaper for them. It's better for them. They were getting killed in early voting before. 
And thus far, it's working. It looks like Republican turnout and early voting is up. And so I think that's another important thing to watch. Let's go to your point about unaffiliated voters choosing the Republican ballot. Mm -hmm. seems like two candidates could benefit from this. Mike Morgan Mm -hmm. might be able to make it a Mm -hmm. closer race with Josh Stein. And then you have Satana DeBerry, attorney general out of Durham. She's also got a Republican independent expenditure, buying ads for her campaign. Mm -hmm. I'm not suggesting they win, but I'm suggesting it could be closer than what we expect. A lot of political consultants want to say, don't pay attention to unaffiliated. It doesn't really matter. It matters how they vote. Well, I think the primary shows us they do matter, right? And they're really hard to predict their behavior. And when we're doing polling, I think we always need to take polls with a grain of salt. I think it's like almost a half a shaker of salt when we're talking about primaries, because the entire point of a poll is you try to predict what the electorate's going to look like. And then you say, hey, this is the electorate. How are you going to vote? Well, how do you say what the electorate's going to look like when you've got people, I ran into somebody the other day who said, I'm voting in the Republican primary. I said, really? You're a pretty left-leaning person. And she said, yeah, I want to vote against Donald Trump twice. <laughs> and so it's tough to poll and yeah. kind of figure that out. Now, what does that mean to your question about Santana DeBerry? And what does it mean about Mike Morgan? I think if you buy this argument, then the Democratic electorate's going to be smaller, right? And the Republican electorate's going to be bigger. That's going to mean the Democratic electorate is going to move a little bit farther left. And I think you're probably right. That does tend to benefit DeBerry and Morgan. Not enough to win, but perhaps enough to be more competitive. And I saw Carolina Ford just came out with a poll, I think this morning, actually. Mm-hmm. And if you look at that, the um, uh, the unknowns amongst African-American voters, small sample, but still it was huge. It was bigger than any of these other groups. And mm-hmm. so I think it says that critical wing of the Democratic Party isn't quite sure what they're going to do yet in the primary. And we already have 300,000 votes that have already been accepted. To kind of go off of that, has there been a poll in recent days that you're looking at and you're saying, hey, this might indicate that there's going to be a surprise come Tuesday? I'm seeing you look at each other. Yeah, that's, that's, we're, we're like, who wants it? <laughs> who, who, wants, who wants the ball? Not Your me. turn. Um, I mean, I, I don't know that we're going to see a lot of surprises on Tuesday. I mean, I think we all, kind of everybody in the chattering class kind of agrees what the interesting races are, what the important races are. I doubt we're going to see too much just complete surprises. That doesn't mean there's no drama, right? Is the lieutenant governor's race going to go to runoff? Is 13 going to go to runoff? What the heck's going to happen in six? Can Mark Harris possibly pull this thing out? Um, Will Cecil Brockman and Michael Ray be able to survive? I mean, there's like if you're looking for drama, it's in the primary. It probably ain't going to be in the general, frankly. I don't know that we're going to see a lot of surprises just because I think we understand the playing field pretty well and we know where the uncertainty lies. What I'm looking for in in Tuesday is at the top of the ticket, particularly on the Republican side, do we see Nikki Haley as kind of the last Republican presidential candidate? Where is her final tally kind of settling in? Is it a 30 percent, 35 percent? That is obvious anti-Trump dynamics at play. The big question then to me is, how does that trickle down from the presidential to the North Carolina Republican gubernatorial contest, where you potentially could see a very close relationship to how Donald Trump does in the various counties to how Mark Robinson does. And I think the two other major Republicans, Falwell and Graham, 
are probably going to be closely aligned. Their vote total may be closely aligned with Nikki Haley's total. So there you kind of get a perception of not just the anti-Trump, but is there an anti-Robinson vote going on as well that could then kind of be a one-two punch to see, all right, is there something playing out that we should be looking for for November? The Do Politics Better podcast is supported by the North Carolina Travel Industry Association. Founded in 1955, NCTIA has a distinguished history of partnering with the North Carolina General Assembly to strengthen and preserve tourism in North Carolina. Visit nctia.travel for more information on how you can support your local tourism destination and the thousands of North Carolina jobs it creates. Let's talk a little bit about congressional races. Dr. Cooper, you brought up uh, Mark Harris. Mm-hmm. What year was it? Was it 26? 2018. 2018. Had the seat taken <laughs> uh, away, according sure. to him. <laughs> right. <laughs> State Board of Election. Yeah. Had a redo. He opted out. That's how we got Congressman Dan Bishop. Of course, he's now running for Attorney General. Mark Harris is back. And then you got Representative John Bradford. Mm-hmm. In that race. Now, I have them as the top two. John Bradford is a Mm self-funder. John Bradford, we here, could have just walked into that treasurer's race and cleaned up on the Republican side, but he opted for a a tougher way. Mm -hmm. What's your assessment here? Let's get both of your reactions, starting with you, Dr. Cooper. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I mean, those are the two that I've got at the top of the ticket there. You know, Bradford is a self-funder, but I think what we need to add is he's a successful self-funder, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, he has a lot more money to spend. I'm not in that district. I think Michael actually is, does live in that district. Yeah. So he's probably actually getting the ads, seeing the mailers, seeing how the money's being spent. I just look at campaign finance reports that are, you know, delayed by a couple of months. But that's sort of my sense of that race. I thought the assembly had a really nice piece about Mark Harris that had a good summary about how much the past is going to affect the present in that race. Um, But that's, I mean, it's definitely one to watch, right? It's one to watch because of the historical storylines. It's one to watch because you've got, again, another General Assembly member perhaps moving up. I mean, if you just take a look really quickly at our congressional delegation, it is overwhelmingly occupied by people who have been in the General Assembly. And even as we're getting folks pulling out, right, like Jeff Jackson's running for Attorney General instead, um, the people who are coming in to fill these spots are also from the General Assembly. So I think it just reinforces, too, how much, if you want to understand the future of our congressional delegation, you've got to understand the present of our state legislative delegation. I mean, the Tim Moores, the Gray Mills, you know, those folks, the Bradfords. I remember that 2018 uh, (laughs) race vividly, and the right before Thanksgiving, or right after Thanksgiving, I think the state board meeting that that called into question a lot of that, that we then got the 2019 Mm -hmm. uh, fiasco going on. While the assembly did a fantastic job on it, I think that that's one of kind of the sleeper races, that Mm -hmm. folks aren't really, there's so much attention to the 13th mm-hmm. to can Mark Walker come back? You know, how's it going to play out with Patrick McHenry's replacement? I think that that race is really going to be the one that's going to be fascinating to watch because it could send a signal of where are the loyalties within the Republican Party of that district lie. And, you know, Harris has tied his coat to Donald Trump yet again. Mm -hmm. I think everything is kind of based on this North Star within Republican Party politics of where are you in relationship to Donald Trump? And I think that that for us, Mm -hmm. 
I think that helps us kind of guide in terms of our analysis after the fact of, okay, this district looks like this. This one is really interesting because it looks like that kind of play out. So we talked about voter trends, but what is a trend that you're seeing in the primary? Let's let's do Republican and Democratic within the candidates themselves. And let's start with the Democratic primaries, maybe Council of State, maybe legislative, whatever you're mm-hmm. seeing as far as like how opponents are shaking out. Dr. Cooper. Sure. I mean, just a couple things that jump in my mind quickly about the Democratic side. Obviously, there's some big questions about race and the future of the Democratic Party. Um, You know, I think there was a sense that Jeff Jackson was the anointed one going into that race after he was drawn out of his congressional seat. Um, And I think Santana DeBerry is saying, hey, wait a second, the African-American vote is a key part, maybe the key part of the Democratic establishment of the Democratic Party. What is that going to look like? So I think you've got obviously questions there that are reflected also in the North Carolina gubernatorial race on the Democratic side, clearly with Mike Morgan and that ad. I want to say the last time I was here, that ad had just come out. And it, I mean, the Mike Morgan ad, if you haven't seen it, go back and watch it. I mean, it's put aside anything you may think about Mike Morgan, his candidacy. It's one of the best political ads I've ever seen. And it puts race forward in a way that I thought was really fascinating, right? It's almost this kind of Spike Lee-like cinematography leading into it. And then on the legislative side, you know, we mentioned in passing the um, the Ray and Brockman seats. I mean, there's a sense that the Democrats who didn't fall in line or fell in line less often are getting targeted. And obviously, history doesn't repeat itself, but it sure rhymes. And so I think we've seen the same kind of thing happen before. Uh, Roy Cooper, some folks may say he uh, reminds of Mr. Rogers, but he's Mr. Rogers that carries a knife, right? It appears that if you cross him, he's going to come after you. And I think that's what we're seeing in these races. Taking everything that Chris said and kind of looking at it big picture, I think in terms of the voter trends that we're seeing in this early ballot so far on the Democratic side, African-American voters are 40% of all the ballots that have been cast. They are the core Mm -hmm. component underground of the Democratic Party. And the big question I have about this year is what is the coalition cohesion on both sides? But if you take the Democratic Party, you know, if you're going with, again, white men as your party nominee, are you going to have that energy? Are you going to have that enthusiasm within that core constituency? And I think it's the same on the Republican side. If you've got the core Trump voter, but you've got consistently now from Iowa to New Hampshire to South Carolina and then critically into Super Tuesday, 30% of the Republican base is not willing to support Donald Trump. Where's the coalition cohesion? Where is this sense of party unity? And is that starting to break apart within both political parties? Uh, you know, we'll just have to wait and see how this plays out. We are seeing it play out somewhat in the General Assembly primaries. Right. For the first time, really, and I, I'll even include the Kirk DeVier primary right. of two years ago, yep. I have never seen sitting legislators endorsing challengers mm-hmm. to sitting legislators in a primary of the same party. Give you a couple of examples. Mike Woodard being challenged mm-hmm. up in Durham. I understand members of his delegation 
have endorsed his opponent. Brian Echeverria is challenging Kevin Crutchfield down in Cabarrus County your way. Mm -hmm. We hear that some sitting legislators have endorsed Echeverria. Mm -hmm. Mark Robinson endorsed Echeverria. Mm -hmm. This is highly unusual. Uh, There seems to be a theme, again, both sides, a purity test in the primaries. Dr. Cooper, are you seeing this as well? Yeah, absolutely. There's a purity test going on in the primaries. And I think I would add everything you just said. You've also got folks from the opposing party supporting incumbents. Yeah. It's, it is a, it's a tough one to wrap your head around. We've gone through the looking glass. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And so I think you're exactly right. There's a purity test, especially when it comes to the general assembly. When it comes to Congress, I think there's this interesting question about what does a purity test even look like when people are getting endorsements from you know groups all over the place? So let's jump to the sixth district, one that's getting a lot of attention, mm-hmm. right? And and no, this is not me. Mark Mark Walker and endorsements, right here. I'm talking about um, Addison McDowell, of course, getting Trump's endorsement, and then Bo Hines is getting the Club for Growth endorsement. Mark Walker didn't represent the same 6th district, but he represented a version of the 6th district, has name recognition. So, like, what does purity look like here? Because I can't tell a dime's worth of difference between those three on ideology, right? I think they'd probably vote the same if they were in office, but yet they are trying to play it as a purity test. And I think the Trump North Star, as Michael said very well, may be the key to understanding this. And so that's, again, one of the major stories I'm wanting to understand on Tuesday. For... Some candidates, they have obviously moved into a direction that they feel is where the party base is. And that party base is becoming more and more unified. That's going to get reflected in the elected officials and the candidates seeking their support. So really, it is driven from the bottom up within a political party because the voters now are seeking to demand that kind of party unity. And that's how you get to elected office through the voters. The registered voters are demanding that, but the Mm -hmm. unaffiliated are bailing on the parties because I think they see both parties as having a purity test and they don't feel very pure when it comes it, to these issues. It, it, it is perfectly exemplified. I don't know about you, Chris, but it is perfectly exemplified in my students. Okay. We are far enough into the semester. I've got a pretty good sense. Who are my conservatives? Who are my liberals? You know, they're, they're having conversations amongst themselves. But when I ask them, so you're registered, right? And they, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We're registered. Which party? Oh, no, I'm unaffiliated. Yeah. And you look at the data, and it's almost 50% of people, 18 to 26-year-olds, registering as unaffiliated. The common excuse, the common reason for registering unaffiliated, I don't like how the parties kind of you know demand that we have to be this. This sense of party loyalty, this sense of extremism within both parties is a huge turnoff. They're the children of polarized politics, Mm -hmm. and it's reflecting in where they are going. Mm -hmm. To that question, and we ponder this all the time, does that mean that in the future, the parties are going to crumble, or is it so established that in our primary system, they have to be there as institutions? Are you seeing with, particularly with Gen Z voters, Mm -hmm. that they maybe want to blow the whole thing up? 
I think we're stuck with parties or lucky to have parties, depending on your perspective. There's just, <laughs> they don't win, right? So Michael and I have done some work where we look at the percentage of, of unaffiliated candidates who actually win, and it's in the low single digits. So they don't run. And when they do run, they don't win, right? And so the best example of this, I think it was Transylvania County, right? You had these three county commissioners. They're Republicans. They didn't love Trump. So they said, you know what? We're just going to be unaffiliated. We're incumbents, right? We're going to win. They all three lost in the next election. And I think that's so telling. Everything is set up against these folks. If, if you're interested in the unaffiliated phenomenon, there's kind of interesting to watch out west. A guy named Van Duncan, his former sheriff, is running for chair of the county commission as an unaffiliated. He's running against Amanda Edwards, who's a Democrat. Buncombe, of course, very, you know, kind of left-leaning county. Um, and Duncan's got the signature, so he's actually going to be on the ballot. He also has name recognition. He's won a countywide election before. Can he pull it off? My gut is no. And it's not that he's not a good candidate. It's not that he doesn't have name recognition. He's actually getting really good funding to get his name out there. But everything we do is set up against this eventuality. The system is working as it was intended mm. to protect the two parties. So I'm very worried that in the future, all these young people aren't going to get that if they want to be in politics, it has to be through a party. They mm -hmm. just don't understand that. So they'll wear their MAGA hat and they're registered unaffiliated or their ACAB shirt and they're registered unaffiliated. And they say, I want to get into politics. And you're like, man, you got to pick a team, pick unfortunately. Yeah. And mm -hmm. um, or maybe fortunately, I don't know. Yeah. That's just the way it is. Yeah, I think, you know, from from the voter behavior perspective, what we as political scientists know is, you know, everybody talks about this mass middle that is 40% independent, you know, that can fly. No, that number shrinks to less than 10% by the time you get to November. So that means 90% of the electorate, whether here in North Carolina, I dare say, or nationally, we know the national numbers, will be partisan and they will vote 75, 80, 90, 95% of the time for their party. Even the independents who lean to one party or lean to the other party, they're just as partisan as the folks that identify with the political mm. party. They just don't like the label. So when they get into the voting booth, that's when their true partisanship tends to play itself out. And, and they like the choice, right? When it comes from moving from, ind so independent, right, is kind of how I feel. Unaffiliated is a category, of course, in North right. Carolina, as you all know well, and the listeners know well. But in North Carolina, we give them a choice. We haven't always done this, right? We created this category of unaffiliated in 1978, I believe, and for a long time, nobody went for it because we had closed primaries. Why would you disenfranchise yourself, right, from a primary? And then the Republicans got religion and said, hey, unaffiliated voters, come to our side. It worked. And finally, about eight years later, the Democrats allowed unaffiliated voters to come over to their side. And then it's off to the races, right? So you take the you know, the fact that they may, people say they're independent, you give them more choice for being unaffiliated, and then you put this hyper-partisan world we live in on top of it, right? Like, thank goodness I got married before dating apps were a thing. But from what I understand, if you want to make sure you don't get a date, put your party label on that, uh, put your party label yeah. on that ad, right? And so it's a smart, rational thing to register unaffiliated. If you want a date, if you want friends, if you want a job in the public sector. 
The Do Politics Better podcast is sponsored by the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association. Beer and wine distributors in North Carolina are family-owned companies that directly employ more than 5,600 men and women across the state. The North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association works with the General Assembly to develop alcohol policies that ensure fairness in a competitive marketplace and promote responsible behavior. Visit the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association at ncbeerwine.com for more information. Let me ask you this question. Academic question for two academics. Imagine a real viable, sane, normal, third-party candidate declared for, let's say, the presidency. Mm -hmm. And the closest we've had in my lifetime, I would think, would be Ross Perot in 1992. Got zero electoral votes, but Mm -hmm. did do— 19% of the vote. That's right. Zero percent of the electoral And seemed like the most viable at Mm -hmm. the time. There's there's talk of, you know, does Mm -hmm. Robert Kennedy— Jr. have a shot at a third party. I don't know how normal he is, but... uh, (laughs) That's Brian Lewis. Um. (laughs) Could a unity ticket work? And this has been talked about as a viable third party option, and that breaks the system. Dr. Bitzer. No. Okay. All right. That's my quick answer. Um, First, the rules of the game are set up to not help third party candidates. Uh, you don't need a majority of the vote. You need one more vote than the guy who comes in second. So that automatically skews things. Layer on top of that, for the most part, everything is winner take all. You get 48% of the vote. The person who comes in second gets 47.99999% of the vote. You get 100% of what you're running for in general. Yeah. Yeah. So this dynamic If we had multi-member proportional representation, if we had ranked choice voting where the winner has to get to 50% plus one, win with 50 plus one, then I could see something else playing out. But the basic rules don't allow that and make for the unity, third party, discount all the voter behavior dynamics that we also know in terms of party loyalty. It just ain't going to happen. Dr. Cooper, you agree with that? You're yeah. nodding. I mean, I, I do agree with him completely. And that's the it's a standard political science answer for a reason, right? Yeah. I mean, it's these institutions matter. And like, I get it. The word institution's boring. Four people just fell asleep when I said it. But <laughs> this stuff matters, right? It, it creates certain outcomes that are pretty predictable. And the most predictable one is these third party candidates just don't have a chance. So, I mean, what would it look like? What would the dream ticket look like? It would have to be somebody with you know, massive name recognition through the roof, because no matter how known somebody is as a candidate, you think people listen to this podcast and who Joe Manchin is, the average person has no clue, Hmm. but they know what a Democrat is. They know what a Republican is. So I think it would really have to be, and I say this actually not as a joke, like an Oprah, somebody with a name that is more known than the party. That kind of money, that kind of network. But even then, let's play this out. I don't know Oprah very well. She doesn't call me back when I call her. But I'm guessing she probably leans a little left. If she were to say, I want to run as a third-party candidate, the entire Democratic Party establishment is going to try to squash her, right? They're going to try to get a Democrat in instead. So I just... I don't see it happening. I think the the scenario that would work would have to be so much more known than a Ross Perot. This is 
giving me flashbacks to last time you were here and you had just begun to track the no labels party. What's right. the update on that? Yeah. So, uh, Michael and I are actually getting up with, uh, with Susan Roberts and Whitney Ross Manzo and David McClendon got to present a paper. It takes five of us to write this paper evidently, uh, in a couple of weeks about no labels. And so I don't know. It's, it's interesting. You One of ask. you for each person registered. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah, pretty, pretty much. One per thousand, exactly I think, is right. where we're yes. at. It's, uh, we each write uh, half a page. And, uh, um, what we're finding is, I mean, the numbers are increasing, um, but people don't seem to know what they're registering for. And I'll pull away from the data mercifully for a second and just tell a story. I was working the polls the other day. I tried to do this during the election season one time or two times, just you know, work, work the polls like a poll worker. And, um, I had a student come in and the student says, you know, I said, how do you want to register? Student says, no labels. I'm like, Oh, I got one. Cool. (laughs) Um, and so I start to write them down for no labels. And then, uh, the other poll worker informs him that that will uh, allow him to get no ballot, right? (laughs) That he can register same day registration for no labels. It's totally fine, but you can't get a ballot. You actually can't exercise your choice in the end in the primary the kid became unaffiliated. And I think that's it. He is smart, seemed to be a smart person. I mean, he made a rational choice, but they just don't know the difference between no labels and unaffiliated was completely lost on him mm-hmm. because he walks in and I just start reading him as I'm supposed to do, read him the script, right? You can be a Democrat, you can be a Republican, no labels. Ooh, I like that one. And then when the reality hits home, they decide to do something else. And David and Whitney at Meredith did some polling on this, and that's what they found. Like, nobody really understands what this no labels thing means. They confuse it with unaffiliated in their head. So we're seeing these numbers rise. I have a feeling we're going to see a fair number of party switchers just after the primary. People who showed up to say, hey, I'm no labels and I'm here to vote. And the nice poll workers say, I'm glad you're no labels. Um, We'll see you in November. Parties have changed. They've even swapped values Mm -hmm. at times the republican party of the late 1800s is not the republican party of today the democratic party of the jim crow era is not the democratic Mm -hmm. party they change and morph sometimes they die they take on new names Mm -hmm. and i feel right now that i'm in a very confusing time this is not the republican party that i grew up on that my Mm -hmm. grandfather voted for proudly for years and years and this is not the democratic party that my grandmother Mm -hmm. was a member of Mm -hmm. it's are we right now in the middle of kind of a realignment and that's what's so confusing do you feel that, that we're going to look back in 20, 30 years and we'll go, oh, yeah, back in 2024, 2020, 2016, that's when the shift started to happen? Yes. And and I would completely agree that we are in this state of flux when it comes to political parties. And I think it's representative of broader societal dynamics that are at play as well. The party of Reagan is now the party of Trump. Mm-hmm. And that party of Reagan that I grew up under is is not the same as what we see today. There are core components still left of what Reagan brought in to create this new Republican Party that became kind of the majority era party of the past, let's say, 40 years from 1980 to, to today. 
But this Trump party is so much different in terms of the dynamics. It's got some of the core components to it in its coalition. But the fundamental shift that has occurred really since Tea Party Republicanism that then morphed into MAGA Republicanism is just fundamentally different. And I think one of the broader societal dynamics is, you know, how this country is shifting, how this country is changing, the role of technology, all of these things is making the country, I I kind of liken it to when folks went from the farm to the factory, Mm -hmm. that the industrial revolution had such a fundamental tectonic shift occur within our society that it fundamentally changed things. To me, we are in a similar kind of pattern. We're in a similar kind of transitory period. But if you look at it from, and this is kind of my bailiwick of, look at it from a generational point of view, people under the age of 45 versus people over the age of 65, it's two different Americas. You know, John Edwards talked about two different Americas. Mm-hmm. We've got those two different Americas playing itself out. And if you look just at what younger people want in terms of the role of government, the basic fundamental worldview that they have versus folks over the age of 65 and their worldview and how they perceive things, there's going to be a political earthquake. Those two tectonic plates are rubbing up against each other. There'll be either a subtle fault line shift or a pretty abrupt one that will send seismic waves out that it just it's there it's when that that trip of the fault lines really occur that has me kind of all right is this the year are we going to see it in four years but it's it's coming dr cooper you agree in some ways i think we're always in the midst of a realignment right so realignments don't really come all at once um this this notion there's like one critical election and we tend to point to it because it's convenient. You say, oh, 1980 was the time where the Democrats finally lost the South. But the reality is they were still dominating in congressional elections for another 15 years. I think these things happen slowly. I think it is happening right now. Um, The way it's going to shake out, obviously, I don't know. I tend to think these two containers of the Democratic and Republican parties are going to be the containers we're going to have Mm -hmm. for this foreseeable future. But what is in them I don't know. And how that plays out in regional dynamics, I'm interested to watch. And I think sometimes we overread wins and losses because that's what sends all the electoral college votes or, you know, as Michael pointed out before, just the winner take all system. But just for the South for a second, right? We say the South is rock rib, most rock rib Republican region of the country, most folks would say. But if you don't look at electoral college votes for a second, just look at the number of votes that went to each candidate, 53% of the vote share in the South went to Donald Trump. 53%. Like, it's he won. He won the South, it's clear. But it wasn't a landslide in the Mm -hmm. South. It actually puts us, 53% is right where Ohio is. Mm -hmm. So if you think of it that way, the South is Ohio. Leans, it's certainly pink in hue, but it's not overwhelmingly Republican. And so I think some of these regional dynamics are shifting 
right now before our eyes. We don't see it because we just see a map on the election day. That map looks really red, but the trend is bluing, right? North Carolina, Florida, and Texas were the three states that Trump won by the smallest margin in 2020, all three Southern states. And and to kind of add on to that, as, as both Chris and I study and teach in our Southern politics classes, even within the South, yeah. the dynamic of the states that are growing versus the states that are kind of stagnant, that are just kind of flatlined, there's two Souths right. emerging in this as well. And I think that for those of us that study this region's politics, and particularly for North Carolina, but Georgia, Florida, still Texas at some point, Virginia, you know, we're going to be watching these states as compared to Alabama, Mississippi, right. Louisiana, Arkansas. Yeah, there are two different tales going on within this region as mm -hmm. well. A lot of this is focused on President Trump, former President Trump, mm -hmm. and it, just the dynamic energy he brings to the races, the last three races. Seems he has tapped into populism, mm -hmm. classic, I would think, definition sure. from going back to my political science days uh, 30 years ago. Are we going to see populism as a thing? What do you think? Trump can't live forever. I think SNL just did a spoof on this mm -hmm. this weekend. Maybe he can, mm -hmm. they said. Oh, yeah. uh, can't. We saw Weekend at Bernie's. <laughs> Plays out. <laughs> Sky, that was a movie. Was, uh... <laughs> so, sorry, I was checking my phone. I wasn't listening. <laughs> I mean, can't, it just seems like, you know, even in this primary, we're down to Nikki Haley versus President Trump. She's taking the more traditional Republican route. He's taking the populist Donald Trump route. Is this the formula to winning future nominations in the Republican Party? Or do you think there will be a reset? There will be a coming back to, okay, we're going to go back to normal candidates. I mean, I think we've always, I mean, heck, the history of the South, just to sort of stay in our region for a minute, is dominated by these populist figures. They tended to be Democrats for a very, yeah. very long time. So I don't think, Donald Trump did not invent populism, and he's not going to be our last populist candidate. My gut is when Trump finally leaves the scene, which, you know, I got in disagreement with a, a mutual friend of ours the other day about this. This friend said, well, Trump will be gone in four years one way or the other. And I thought, nah, that guy's running again. Like, he's going to run as long as he's still ticking, in my opinion. But I think the next one may be a little bit less on the populist side. But the Democrats are not immune from populism either, right? I mean, you certainly saw... Some populist strands in the Bernie Sanders campaign, different, different kind of campaign, ideologically, radically different, but certainly there are some populist strains there. So I think it will continue to see some bit of it, whether somebody else can harness it as well as Trump has. I think it may be a little while. Um, the people yeah. who have tried have, have failed, yeah. but maybe that's because, you know, the, the champion is still in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you've got the original messenger and you've got folks that want to be right. the messenger. Why would you not go with the original in, mm -hmm. in that regard? I think um, populism always has this strain within American politics. It gets elevated when people see the power dynamic going against them. They think it's a zero sum game. Your group wins. So my group loses in that regard. And that's what tends to aggravate and mobilize and scare people. Use the power of threat. Use the power of fear. 
And that's, and that's an effective tool in politics, particularly if you're setting it up as an us versus them kind of mentality. Where the Republican Party goes post-Trump, I'm, I'm going to be fascinated to watch it play out because are we seeing enough of folks that have now been through Trumpism to say that is not my version of a conservative party dynamic. And even if the party reorients itself, has the damage been done in terms of generational dynamics to where you almost have to wait for the next generation to come in and start to rebuild and really bring a broader coalition together than what it is now kind of focused on the the evangelical perspective just mm-hmm. as one example yeah. is to me fascinating when you know younger people are becoming more unaffiliated with religious faith but they have a sense of faith but organized religion just like organized political parties yeah i, I don't want to deal with that race of the week Let's turn to some races. What is a race that you're watching at the legislative level, Dr. Coop? I mean, in the primaries, the legislative level, I'm watching, I mean, the big three to me are the, the Michael Ray seat, the Cecil Brogman seat, and then the Trisha Cotham seat. I mean, mm-hmm. those have got probably, I don't want to say the most, but among the most interesting primaries going on you know the vast majority of these legislative seats as we all know the general is going to be a foregone conclusion so it's a pretty short list when it comes to the general i'll throw out one to watch um closer to my neck of the woods lindsey prather's seat in buncombe county lindsey prather of course is a, a a democrat in the general assembly currently an incumbent and uh her district was redrawn in a pretty significant way a very significant way um with with the political consequences that make it a republican leaning district so that'll be one to watch in the general that's a little bit farther away from the triangle folks may not be watching as much as they should yeah i'd, I'd agree with all those i'm i'm particularly interested in the, in the cotham race but also who on the democratic side is going to be her her primary challenger in that in that contest as chris alluded to so many of these races are going to be decided March 5th, mm-hmm. not November, March 5th. And if folks don't understand that they're picking the winner out of the vast majority of both state Senate and state house contest, we we've done a poor job of, of informing the electorate because this is the election that matters for a significant percentage of both chambers and, and also congressional districts as well election night what is your ritual are you just sitting at home hitting refresh on the ncsbe.gov website like the rest of us or uh, do you tend to can can you go to sleep on it because i can't i i just cannot go to sleep there's no sleeping there's no sleeping until (laughs) wednesday afternoon typically for for a quick power nap Uh um one thing that both of us are are trying to get out to folks is if you're expecting that immediate dump of early votes at 731 or whenever the polls close, you're going to have to go get another drink and just <laughs> chill out for probably another hour because the change in the law 
now requires that counties wait and they have to process those ballots. So all of us have been trained to do the control R, control R at 731, and we see this huge dump of votes come out. You're just going to have to kind of wait and pace yourself on that. Tuesday night, I'll be uh, heading down to Charlotte about 9 o'clock, be in studio at, at, for a 10 o'clock uh, hit, and then we'll get back late this, that, that evening back to the house and then probably up, as you will probably be, up early yeah. the next morning trying to make sense of all this on, what, four or five hours worth of sleep? If that. we're lucky, yeah. We're lucky. I mean, I think it just to put a little more meat on the bone of what Michael said very well, the, the mail votes that come in by Monday are still going to drop at 731. And the reason yeah. is they can, again, this is, I get it's boring, but stay with me if you can. Like, get another <laughs> cup of coffee. This really matters. Those are going to get processed, not counted. Don't freak out here. They get processed ahead of time. Any of the mail ballots that come in Tuesday and all of the in-person early votes, it used to be that at 2 o'clock on election day, all these county boards of elections would start processing the stuff. And that's what made it possible to hit the refresh button in 731 and you've got all the in-person early votes, they can't start that process until 730. They can't start that process until the close of the polls on that day. So the lion's you're going to get a little trickle at 731, but it's going to be way smaller, so we're going to have to wait. And then it's like any other process. If they're doing that part first, they can't then do the in-person until that part is done. It's a real change, and this is buried in... Bill 747, Senate Bill 747, that big old election bill with so much in it. We're all paying attention to mail ballots can't be accepted until the day of and or after the day of the election and all that. But this is critically important. As to the um, really boring me-centered part, yeah, I will probably go for a bike ride early in the day. Uh, I will then head to Biltmore Park and do some stuff at the WLOS studio that night. Uh, when about 11.30, I guess I'll be done with TV, and then I'll go back and run some data, drink two beers, go to sleep, get up at 5 o'clock in the morning, rinse and repeat. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What a silly question when they're both media stars. It's <laughs> <laughs> a, a wide definition of star. So for our listeners out there who want to keep up with the election results but don't want to stay wedded to their computers the way we all are Mm -hmm. Uh, where can our listeners find you on social media so they can get updates on election night or even before because you guys are posting great information every day especially about voter turnout where can we find you you know so i'm still posting stuff to twitter x whatever his musk wants us to call it this week (laughs) um if i can i tend to also put stuff on blue sky and on threads but I'll be honest, on election night, I'm not going to have the bandwidth, bandwidth to okay. copy and paste. So okay. I should have just said, look for me on Twitter at the beginning. All right. <laughs> at, at Chris Cooper. Oh, WCU. I'm sorry. At Chris Cooper WCU at Twitter. Yeah. Not a great self-promoter. <laughs> no, really. I have a lot of faults. We can talk about those in the next segment, but uh, that is one of just them. Just because you're on a couch doesn't mean this is therapy, but... <laughs> So, at, so I don't need to pay at the end. <laughs> that's right, that's right. So at Bowtie Politics uh-huh. on Twitter, X, whatever your choice of, of name is, uh, that's that's where I'll be. And okay. uh, usually it's weird because you never know what the news station wants you to talk on. So you're kind mm-hmm. of always trying to dive into stuff and think about things. 
and then people start tweeting at me. I don't know if you get this, but people start tweeting at me as I'm talking live on TV, <laughs> thinking that that I can respond to them instantaneously. And I'm like, there's only so many venues by which I can be doing something and keep a sane mind. Like, <laughs> so. That's right. Which is questionable for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tweet of the week. The Tweet of the Week is sponsored by the North Carolina Pork Council, representing hog farmers around the state working hard to do agriculture better. Today, hog farms are reducing their carbon footprint by covering lagoons, reducing emissions, and generating renewable natural gas. To learn more, visit ncpork.org. This week's Tweet of the Week is from Brent Woodcox. He's at Brent Woodcox on Twitter or X. It says, cell phone outage? Y'all really out here just calling people? What year is it? You got a rotary dial on that phone? Now, of course, I'm sitting here with three men who are not in the same generation as me, and I've been wanting to say this, but one of y'all has a phone that keeps going off. Yeah, it's me. Okay. It's me. That's, um, that's at Chris Cooper WCU. <laughs> <laughs> do you call people i still call people I still call. and uh, leave a message i've been told yeah, i'm not supposed to leave he's a always leaving a voicemail i'm like yeah they know you're calling them <laughs> they called you first <laughs> i believe in leaving a message I, i'm still of that dynamic as well right. yes yeah I'm, yes. I'm an omnivore of communication i will uh i'll text i'll email and i'll call yeah sometimes all three what is wrong with leaving a voicemail, Sky? There's nothing wrong with leaving a voicemail. But if they called you and then you're calling them back, you don't need to leave them a voicemail to let them know, hey, I'm calling you back. They can use context clues on their phone to figure that out. Do you not use the transcription <laughs> thing? Yeah, I do. I never listen to voicemails. Yeah, I mean, it seems like a kind of a disembodied head talking to you. Yeah, no, I get that. I read the transcription of it, though. <laughs> Working with students every day, you have seen technology evolve. You've seen it not only in your careers, but yeah. you've seen kids, yes. the way they they learn, they process. And it, it, it got me thinking about when I started college in the early 90s, I started with a typewriter. Mm-hmm. I ended college with email and a computer. Mm-hmm. So it was, I remember that transition happened, 90 mm-hmm. to 94. I remember when the World Wide Web came on. Mm-hmm. How are kids today in college, they, they have everything at their fingertips, right? Yeah, they do. Right. I remember going to the Jackson Library at UNCG to do research. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do, they even, do, do kids even have to go to the library now? No, going to the library is more about getting together with a group and doing a group project or, you know, you know, doing homework together or something. It's not about the research. It's not about the investigation of information. It's more about bringing folks together and, and making that kind of dynamic play itself out. I, you know, in class, I'll ask a, a, a kind of general question just to kind of get feedback. And all I hear is, and they're on the Google machine okay. and, and you know, they're, they're trying to find, and I'm it's like, called a computer. I, I get that. <laughs> Trust me when I say that, yeah. when I'm staring up into my stadium style classroom and I see this bank of, you know, yeah. monitor, you know, flipped up. Uh, but, but they're, they're not willing to just engage in the question without having to know what the answer is Interesting. kind of thing. And, you know, there, there are times yeah. I say, close the laptop. 
Let's have a conversation. Yeah. Let's just talk about what you think you know. And I use their power to be able to search for things. And then I say, now let's find out what the data tells us or what are what is going on or who is this? So this instantaneous dynamic of communication and being able to find the answer is a great thing. But you need to understand the power of inquiry. You need to understand asking the right kind of question kind of thing. And so, yeah, technology has just completely revolutionized uh, so many different aspects. And we see it in the classroom. I've got an 18-year-old at home. He, he is a digital native. He knows nothing other than that. And, you know, it's just the world that we reside in now. Agree with all of that. The challenge is different in my mind in teaching now. I mean, now it's about getting them to be comfortable with the question, to roll around in the question for a while, to spend time in the question, right? I mean, that's really where the thought is. Mm-hmm. For me, that's about asking different kinds of questions. I ask fewer factual questions because I can find out a fact, you know, at the drop of a hat. But it can also be a really good thing. Um, so Michael and I get up every morning. I get a cup of coffee. He gets some tea. And we can run the early voting stats before we even get to work. Like that's technology makes that mm-hmm. possible. Like right, we wouldn't sure. have been able to do that a while ago. And so you can also update things for class faster. I do different kinds of assignments now. Still certainly assign papers like everybody else, but I'll do kind of small stakes assignments that are fun sometimes. I had students one semester come up with a, a playlist with liner notes. I had to tell them what liner notes were, but uh, come up with a playlist. <laughs> Scott, those you'd get albums, and then they would be about the songs. So, so an album, 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 music. No, they're bad. But anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. so I ask students to you know do that. And so they send me their Spotify lists with uh, liner notes with, and I'm like that wouldn't have been possible a while ago. Or our buddy Gibbs Knotts at the College of Charleston does. He'll have students in his Southern politics class do videos of Southern identity, like what does the South mean to them, and they'll produce videos on their own, and it's not onerous for them to do it i'll sometimes do trailers for class he's an iMovie hmm. um and so it's it's i think you just have to adjust what you're asking them and lean into the good hopefully um and i say all that and I'm, the the other thing that comes with it of course is that our references fall flat much like they have today with sky <laughs> so <laughs> well hey we wish you both a happy primary election <laughs> hope it's smooth sailing that you do have that Please. drink you do get yes. that rest we appreciate you being on the podcast your students we've said this before your students are so fortunate to have you as professors, not only do you understand what's going on in Raleigh and in D.C., but your ability to be able to explain it to a vast audience, I imagine it's just that much greater with your students. Yeah, and 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 I also want to say congratulations on the 150 well, uh, uh, episodes. Yeah. That, that is a great milestone. You all have contributed a lot to, to my political understanding, my uh, yeah. sense of knowledge about this state as well. So thank you both for, for what you all do. Yeah, I share with, with with both of you this before, but I had a student come up to me the other day after class and say that uh, she's been listening to the podcast ever since Sky visited my class one time, and she was asking me follow-up questions about something Dylan Watts said on your podcast. So I think you guys both are really helping educate the next generation also about how state government works, that maybe perhaps all lobbyists aren't the evil people they're portrayed to be 
and, uh, and how this stuff works in practice. So thanks. Well, thank you. Thank you. And to our listeners out there, it is time to vote. You've got a few days until early voting. It ends Saturday at three o'clock. If you're not registered, you can register if you vote early. Otherwise, be at the polls Tuesday, March 5th. Have your voice heard and your vote counted.